we did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. Unlike other automakers, we at Ford don't think you should need a 20-minute tutorial to open your glove box. So we made our technology easy to use by making our vehicles available with Blue Cruise hands-free driving, Sync 4, and the Ford Pass app. And the best part? They just work. Built for America. Built Ford proud. Optional features listed. This is Who Killed Teresa, and I'm your host, John Elor. Today we're going to sit down for a conversation with Heidi Illingworth. Heidi is the former executive director of the Canadian Resource Centre for Victims of Crime and the current and newly appointed Canadian Federal Ombudsman for Victims of Crime. Life isn't fair, justice is blind and dysfunctional, and some cops aren't smart and dedicated, like on television. Heidi, welcome to the podcast. I am truly so happy you're here today to talk with us. Thank you so much, John, for inviting me. Um, so first things, we should just get this uh, right out of the way immediately. Uh, congratulations on taking my job. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> no, no, I, I think I've, it's, an, it's an honor for me to uh, be in this role. And I know there was uh, some very... Uh, other very qualified candidates, such as yourself, who also had an interest in the position. Well, I, I have to, I've said this to you privately, but I, I, I want to say it publicly. You are so much more qualified than I am for this role. I'm, I'm so happy for you. You are absolutely the right person. You even coached me in preparation for my interviews. And I think, I mean it when I, when I said it to you, that if I ever had the opportunity to come and work for you, uh, I, I would love to, because I think you, you absolutely are the right person for this role. Oh, thank you so much. So um, I was watching this morning the, the segment on uh, power and politics, the power lunch uh, interview you gave with the CBC, I, I guess about four months ago. Um, the the format is a little goofy, I have to say. That I, I've never seen. You, you know, yeah. you, you order your food. Uh, they they deliver the food, um, and and then the 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 part that put me over the edge was when the guy actually the waiter came back and interrupted you to ask if you, everything was all right. I thought, I thought, hey, CBC, that's a bit much. 
<laughs> well, it was so funny. We um, we thought, uh, okay, well, you know, they'll put us in a back spot in the restaurant. It won't be busy. Like, well, we planned it for 11 in the morning. It'll be before the rush. But, of course, it was right before Christmas. So it was insane in the restaurant. It was so busy. And they put us right at the front in the bar. It was, so, I was so embarrassed. There were, you know, like a million people walking by, all these, the cameras and the lights, and it was so noisy. It was quite, it was actually comical, because um, I couldn't, uh, my comms manager who was with me, like, she couldn't hear me, I couldn't hear her. Yeah, it was actually, I, it was it was super fun, and that uh, actually was great, but uh, yeah, it was uh, was almost like, am I on candy camera? No, like, I'm on real camera. This is crazy. <laughs> uh, I thought it was an excellent choice. You didn't order the ribs. I was surprised she ordered the tortilla soup. I thought that was bold as a journalist. But uh, anyway, I, um, I I learned a lot um, that I, I didn't know about that. Um, can you, so, so you grew up in, in Manitoba, and I wondered if you could tell us uh, and uh, listeners a little bit about uh, your experiences growing up in uh, in uh, Winnipeg well I yeah I can tell you only a very little bit because I was born there but I was born there because my dad was in the Air Force so we didn't stay there very long I was only there about six months and we actually lived in Europe um, until I was about five so my dad flew for NATO, and we were in Scotland and Germany. Uh, so I did all my preschool actually in German. Um, when I was fluent in German, I wish I still had it, <laughs> but I don't. Um, and then we came back to the Ottawa area when I was five so I could start school here. Um, so I've been, I actually grew up in Ottawa, outside of, you know, west end of Ottawa, and uh, went to Carleton University. So I'm actually truly, like, I... I, I joke that I'm from Winnipeg, but I honestly, I don't know it very well at all. Um, very limited time there, and I've only been back a couple of times to visit. And you, uh, at Carleton, did you study Did you study law? Is that correct? Yes, I did. I, I took law um, with an emphasis in criminal justice, because that was before the time that you could do a BA in criminology, but it was basically a, a criminology degree, and yeah, I loved I loved Carlton. I loved my time there, and I especially loved uh, in third year we got to do a a field placement in the crim program. So I was really fortunate to do a placement with a group called Victims of Violence, and that group was founded by family members of Clifford Olson's victims, and um, they you know they actually started in. Um, their, their group in the Edmonton area, but then they moved it to Ottawa because they wanted to have a really active role in terms of um, pushing the federal government to make changes for the betterment of, of victims' rights and victim services. Uh, so, yeah, I got, I, I got to do this placement with them, and it was just a complete awakening for me because my degree was completely focused on, you know, the perpetrators of crime and people accused of crime. So when I saw that there was this opportunity to work with an agency that was focused on victims, I was like, oh, what is, what is this? And, um, you know, I, I was completely shocked to learn about how they were treated, these parents. You know, there was 11 children abducted and murdered in the early 1980s in lower mainland of British Columbia, and how these families were treated was just appalling, you know, by the police, by Crown by everyone involved. Actually, the media were the only people who were supportive of them and their 
their plight um, to get information and, and to be part of the criminal justice system. So um, working with Gary and Sharon at Victims of Violence was just the most amazing experience for me. And those, those, that's the Rosenfeld family, is that correct? Yeah, the Rosenfelds, yeah. Gary and Sharon Rosenfeld. And, and, and their, their 16-year-old son was murdered by Clifford Olson, correct? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Darren was murdered. Uh, and like I said, he was one of 11 children who were uh, abducted and murdered by that serial killer. Um, a very you know famous case here in Canada. Um, and just a, a case also that really showed us how uh, victims were just com a complete afterthought in the system. And so it was really, you know, their their strength to make changes, their resilience, their passion that really inspired me. And I, I knew after doing that placement that I, this is what I was meant to do. I want to, I wanted to help bring a, a voice to, you know, so many people who, who couldn't or, or um, you know, needed help to advocate for themselves. And I was really fortunate at that time, um, I met that Rosenfeld introduced me to Steve Sullivan, who was the president of the Canadian Resource Center for Victims of Crime, and he needed an assistant. So I went to work for him right after my third year of university. So, yeah, I, you stole my fire, but no, <laughs> we'll get there. But uh, um, I don't know if you're aware of this. Um, shortly before he died of cancer in, in, in prison, Clifford Olson was trying to... Uh, contact me and claim ownership to say that he had he knew some information about my or possibly was involved in my sister's unsolved murder and I learned this from Kim Rosmo who contacted me and, and told me this was in play and he said abs you are he said you are absolutely not he said first of all it's bullshit and number two you're absolutely not to communicate with Clifford Olson. He will get inside your head and that, that'll be it. Um, interesting that you, did you ever have, um, were you ever compelled towards the criminology side or was it always victimology? Um, well, I, I think for me, you know, I started out, um, in criminology, like my interest was law and like legal studies and the system and how it works. But I, I don't know. I just, um, I guess I've always kind of been, you know, passionate about justice and fairness and, in you know, when, when there's perceptions of injustice, like I've always been sort of a person to speak out. So um, I think it was like just a sort of a natural pull towards the, the victim side of the equation. Um, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not all that surprised to hear you say that about, um, Mr. Olson, because we know he was uh, very active from within prison and trying to, you know, manipulate people and stay in the media. It was, um, you know, very difficult uh, for all of the family members because he continued, like, from within prison, he was doing things like you just said, you know, trying to, um, you know, reach out to media and talk to people and keep himself in the news. Such a narcissist. Yes. Uh, so you mentioned Steve Sullivan, who some some may not know uh, at, at that time was um, the, I guess, executive director of the Canadian Resource Centre for Victims of Crime uh, and and was Canada's first uh, federal ombudsman. 
Uh, yeah. Well, before we even get there, I mean, uh, what what the heck is an ombudsman? Uh, I mean, we let's let's just start for somebody who yeah. who might not know what is what is an ombudsman. Um. So an ombudsperson. I'm, Thank I'm you. That term now. Um. It's a. It's actually a term, a Swedish word, and it's uh, meant to be. Um, it means neutrality and impartiality, and it's somebody who is meant to address complaints in an impartial and neutral way and try to find a resolution for people when they have complaints. So, right. Um, that's what we, we do at our office federally is um, we, we speak to victims across the country who have an issue um, with the systems that they're dealing with, and our focus is federal. Um, so, you know, we can take complaints from victims and then we investigate them and we try to, um, I guess, have the federal system be more understanding of victims' needs and their rights and their, um, you know, in, in the way that they interact with victims. So whether it's programs or policy or legislation, we're trying to bring that victim's lens um, and focus into the, the federal realm. Is that ever, um, I mean, I think sometimes it's uh, can be frustrating for a victim because, you know, they hear this, oh, the, the federal Canadian ombudsman for crime. But you do have a specific mandate, with, which means there's areas where you can go, but there's areas you can't go. And obviously, you know, interfering at the provincial level is, I imagine you can, you can make referrals, but in some cases, if, if, um, if, a, if a matter is of a criminal nature in, in Quebec, you can't really miss, you know, mix in or into their business. Is that ever frustrating at all, uh, working that way? Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, it's, it's really tough in, in our system because of the division of powers of government. We have, you know, the federal government that makes the criminal law, but it's the provinces and um, who are responsible for the administration of justice and most of the time responsible for policing as well. And we know that um, victims, the majority of the dealings that victims are going to have are in that provincial context because victim services are also local and provincially, um, you know, run and facilitated. So um, the sort of the scope of the federal responsibility for victims issues is quite small. So um, at the same time, though, it is, you know, it's, it's interconnected, uh, for sure. So I see um, a lot of ways that we can, you know, continue to have a voice um, in victims issues. And I, and I think that's a big part of the, the good work that the ombudsman can do is continuing to educate, you know, um, just using the victim fine surcharge as an example. Um, which was struck down in, in December by the Supreme Court of Canada. What um, I've, I've read that. So there was, um, yeah. uh, there was a surcharge. If, if somebody was convicted at the time of conviction, they could potentially be charged uh, a monetary amount, which would then go towards victim services in the provinces and the territories, correct? And the Supreme right. Court struck it down. So what is right. the status of that now? And what are the implications? Yeah. Um, 
Well, so what happened is the Supreme Court struck it down in December. They said that um, because the former conservative government made it mandatory, um, that it, it constituted cruel and unusual punishment. It violated Section 12 of the Charter. Um, which which is, I'll stop yeah. you right there, because when I read that cruel and unusual punishment, I mean, that <laughs> the irony of that hurt. Nevertheless, continue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what happened was there was a lot of um, very impoverished offenders who are mentally ill and, you know, have never had a job or never going to have a job are just unable to pay these fines. And a lot of times the fines were adding up because they had to do with like administration of justice offenses, like breaches of certain things. Um, so what happened was there was a, a bunch of defense lawyers across Canada who took on this case and they took it all the way up to the Supreme court because when it was originally brought in, in 1988, it wasn't mandatory judges had discretion to impose it or not. Um, and so when the conservatives changed the legislation, they made it mandatory. So that meant that there was no wiggle room for the judges. They had to impose it. And sometimes it was adding up to a really disproportionate amount for people who could simply not pay it. Like there was no way they could ever pay it. And well, well, that, I mean, that I understand. I, I mean, I don't, it's kind of futile taxing somebody who's destitute, but to strike it yeah. down unilaterally against people who potentially have the means seems to me at cross purposes. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the Supreme Court did say that it is a valid law, like there's a valid purpose to it. It's, um, it's really important that we fund victim services in Canada, and this is a way to do it. And it's also a way to hold people accountable to their victims and to the public, right, for for what they've done. So these additional fines are justified, um, but it's the way that it's, it's done. So, um, you know, there has to be discretion for the sentencing judge at the who's, who's looking at the individual circumstances of the person who's convicted to be able to say, yes, it's reasonable that you pay such and such a fine, uh, or no, it's not. So um, that's where we are right now. We're waiting for um, Bill C-75 to go through the Senate. It's at Senate right now. And I actually just got notice that committee is going to start hearings on it on May 8th. So it's part of this really large bill. Bill C-75 is a huge, like, 300-page bill that um, we're hoping is going to pass before the election because it will bring back, it'll give back discretion to judges um, for the victim fine surcharge and ensure that, um, you know, they, they can't just waive it automatically. They have to give reasons when they're going to waive it. They have to explain that the offender is destitute or what have you. So it'll be positive um, once it comes back. And um, hopefully that will be, like I said, before the election is called. Well, that, that sounds like a, a reasonable compromise. And um, since you brought up the, the election, that's this fall, yes? Yeah, we're um, October, I guess. We're waiting for news of, um, like I said, um, we, we think this session is going to go till the end of June, hopefully, so we can get, like, there are some really important pieces of legislation before the government right now. So 
hopeful that they will get passed, and then yeah, we're we will see what the fall will bring in terms of uh, the federal election and who will lead us going forward. What's it like being in Ottawa under an election climate in your line of work, given that you know on the one hand you have the Trudeau Liberals. Um, and, and the introduction of a bill like C-75. Uh, and on the other hand, you you have quite conservative hardliners like uh, Pierre Boisvenu, who kind of have, a, as I say, a hardline approach. And, and there you are in the middle um, as the ombudsperson. Yeah, well, um, this is going to be obviously my first election uh, on the inside um, of government because I've you know, always before been in, in the NGO scenario. But, yeah, things will kind of um, come to a halt for us as public servants. We, you know, we kind of have to step back and work on some internal projects while the election process is going on. So that'll be interesting. But it, it's also good. I think it'll be a good time for my office to, to work on some of the priorities that I've set for the next few years. Um, but, yeah, it'll, it, it's going to be... An interesting climate. I don't think it it gets quite as wild as it does in the United States in terms of the <laughs> the campaigns and the uh, attack ads or anything like that. But um, I turned off my television seriously, and any news, American news, January first. <laughs> you, if you ask me who's running, I don't know because I don't. Yeah. I, I, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's horrible. Yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful we'll be more civil um, in. In Canada, but I, you know, I think around the world we're seeing, um, you know, politically that uh, there's quite a bit of division. Um, yes. And, you know, whether in Europe or the United States, so um, maybe we're going to see that same sort of flavor in Canada. I don't, I don't know. Um, but I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I look forward to working with whoever, which, whichever party is elected, and uh, you know, for us, it's what we're doing is is about victims and it it doesn't matter who is uh, at the head of the, the government. We are politically neutral and we're just working towards um, strengthening victims' rights and ensuring that the, the system is responsive to their needs and treats them fairly and appropriately and um, that they can access support. Going back to your your years, I think almost twenty years with the Canadian Resource Center of, for Victims of Crime. Um, so you're there. Steve Sullivan is leading it, and um, your your, um, your NGO is was instrumental in the creation of this federal office of which now you head. What then was your vision for the ombudsman? Um, and how do you feel, you, you, you know, did you get everything you want? What did you, what did you not get? And where would you like to see things improved? Well, I, you know, I think the, the creation of the Ombudsman's Office was um, something that the CRCVC was involved with. But, um, you know, I want to give credit to the many victim advocates who were involved, like um, Margine Fitchtenberg, who is on the board of the CRCBC, or she used to be on the board. Uh, her son, Dennis, was murdered in 1991, and she um, was successful in getting an inquest into her son's murder, and um, 
what happened was the recommendations out of that inquest in British Columbia, they recommended that the province set up a victim ombudsman office. And so that's sort of where the idea was born. And then um, many other victims felt like there really needed to be like something at the federal level that could be a voice, you know, and shine a public light on issues that victims were having, um, whether it was through policy legislation or, or programs. Um, and then, so I think it was in 98 that Peter McKay, uh, who was a former conservative MP, he did a, he made a motion to create like a commissioner for victims' rights or something like that at the federal level, but it never really moved forward. And then there was also another uh, victim whose son was also murdered um, in the Thunder Bay area. Her name is Carolyn Solomon, and she was working with her MP, Ray Bonin, um, from the Sudbury area. Uh, and they had actually created a private member's bill as well in the early 2000s to create an office, like a, some sort of ombudsman office. So the, it was really gaining a lot of momentum, but it, you know it was a long process um, of of the office actually coming to fruition. But then the the conservatives finally did it. Uh, it was 2007, um, and it was Stephen Harper's government that created the office. And you know I think um, there has just been a movement in Canada since the 80s towards better recognition of what victims go through and um, that they should have rights, that there needs to be a better balancing in the criminal justice system. And, and we continue to evolve. Like we're, we're nowhere near where we need to be yet. Um, you know, our, we have this federal victims bill of rights, but it, it's not, it doesn't give it provide enforceable rights to victims. So we're not, we're not all the way there yet. I, there's a lot more work to do. And part of what I'm excited about is trying to, to continue to push for um, the changes that we've been talking about for a long time in this country. Marjean uh, is also one of the funniest people I've I've, I've ever met. Let's <laughs> 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 uh, um, uh, Because a lot of the listeners aren't from from Canada, the the justice model. Um, in some of the Northern Territories um, and for First Nations in Canada can be quite different. Um, have, you, have you traveled to the North and can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges with the uh, victims' issues in, in those arenas? Yeah, I can, I can talk a, a little bit about it. I, um, I've had the pleasure of going up um, to Yellowknife once for a conference uh, and I believe that was in 2010. Uh, one of my goals um, as ombudsman is to do much more extensive outreach in the north. We do not have very much visibility up there at all. Um, we only get a very small number, like a handful of complaints or inquiries that come in from our three northernmost territories. Um, so we have work to do. There's a lot of resource challenges up there. Um, certainly, um, you know, and each of the territories is very different. For example, in the Yukon, um, you can drive um, between communities for the most part. Um, but then in, um, in Nunavut and the Northwest Territories, there are some communities that are only fly-in. So we have the Public Prosecution Service 
uh, of Canada federally, um, prosecutors fly in and out of some of these communities to conduct like circuit courts. Um, and so it's really the federal that's responsible up there for the prosecution of crime. Um, and they have Crown Witness coordinators that work with the communities and work with the victim services programs up there um, to try to ensure that victims' needs are met. But there's a lot of challenges, even in terms of um, accessibility to the internet, to telephones. Um, not everybody has, uh, you know, service to interact. So even connecting with um, victims that you need to testify um, is difficult. Um, I just had a meeting with um, the woman who's in charge or works for the Nunavut um, Victim Care Program, and um, she was telling me about some of the challenges in their territory as well. Um, massive, massive land spaces and, um, you know, to traverse across, and they're sometimes working with... Um, you know, RCMP detachments where there's only one or two officers and maybe high needs in the community in terms of, um, you know, violence that's happening and substance abuse problems. Um, so lots of challenges. Um, but also I hear, um, you know, just amazing things from the people in the north about um, how, how great it is to live there and how the people are so wonderful. And um, so I'm really hoping, one of my goals, like I said, is to, to do some sort of campaign. Um, we're, we're planning to work with, we want to do a Know Your Rights campaign um, because I, I still feel really strongly that, that many people um, who are victimized don't know that they have rights um, through the Canadian Victims Bill of Rights and, and they don't know how to assert them. So we want to, encourage people to know their rights and to assert them and part of that challenge is reaching victims in the north and survivors in the north and how do we do that and how do we do it in a way that's um, appropriate to their culture and understanding of, of their culture you know they may not um, feel comfortable making a complaint so how do we you know how do we get our messages that so that it resonates with folks um, you know so we want to hear their experiences and have them share their experiences with us so we can try to improve the justice system and how, um, you know, victims are treated across the systems. Um, so, yeah, we have, we have a lot of, I have a lot of work to do. Interesting to maybe touch a little bit on that your your statement about many victims don't know what their their rights are, and I think you brought this up with the recent um, introduction of the Declaration of Rights for for military cases, where the military was trying to kind of say, well, we'll we'll take care of it, and you're like, no, and and unless you codify what it is you're trying to do, it th those rights will get diluted and forgotten. Um, can maybe talk a little bit about um, 
those declarations, but also in the context of uh, what rights do Canadians have, Canadian victims have that they may not be aware of? Yeah, so we the we have a federal piece of legislation. We have the Canadian Victims Bill of Rights, and that was passed in 2015. And it set out rights, statutory rights for victims at the federal level for the first time in Canadian history. So victims have a right to, first of all, information um, when they report a crime to the police and. Um, get involved in the criminal justice system. Um, they have a right to be informed, um, you know, of, for example, um, whether charges are laid or whether they're, you know, a case is going to be progressing forward to a trial. They have a right um, to uh, speak with criminal justice folks, whether it's police or crown, um, and to uh, present their views and have them considered. Um, so that is a right to participation. They have a right to protection as well. It's a third area. So when whether they're dealing with police, crowns, or the court system, uh, and then the corrections and parole system as well, they can assert uh, their rights to um, safety and to be to have them considered by those decision makers. You know, it could be in bail. It could be um, when somebody is receives a sentence or afterwards when they're coming back into the community following a sentence. Um, and then the fourth right that the, this new bill gives is the right to have a court consider restitution in their case. So that means if there are expenses that are related to the crime, um, they can ask the court to consider making a restitution order and then to have um, that order attached as a civil um, uh, sort of payment that the the offender has to make. Um, so that that civil order can stays attached to the offender until such time as that they pay it. You know, for example, so if there's a an incident of domestic violence and uh, uh, somebody breaks into the home, the perpetrator breaks into the home and there's some damage to um, the door, say a door window needs to get replaced and some locks need to get changed. The victim can actually take receipts to the court and say, listen, I have expenses as a result of this victimization and um, the court can decide to have a, an offender um, pay that restitution directly to the victim. So um, there's there's four major areas um, that, that cross or that give victims rights, like I said, the right to information, a right to participation, a right to protection, a right to restitution. And then this bill also gives victims the right to make a complaint if they're not satisfied with the response that they've received from, you know, various people or, or systems that they've come into contact with. So every agency that deals with victims is now required to have a, a complaint process. And um, victims can make a complaint, you know, if they feel their their rights have been violated or if they've been treated unfairly. Um, so that is a, a new to our system as well. And my office has been acting sort of as a second review of complaints. It doesn't say that specifically in the legislation, but what has happened is that 
agencies like um, the Correctional Service of Canada or Parole Board, when they receive a complaint from victims and they respond to it, they are telling victims, if you're not satisfied with how we responded to you, you can go to the federal ombudsman for victims of crime. So what essentially what our role has become is looking at these complaints sort of as a as a second reviewer and then trying to, you know, have systems like we don't have we don't have legislative authority or, or legal authority to compel anyone to do anything, but we try to persuade agencies um, at times uh, that you know they may want to um, consider making changes to how they operate it, for example. Um, and I can tell you, um, you know, the interview that I did with Vashi on power and politics was, was a little bit of that in terms of prison transfers and victims having a voice in that process. Like they've been telling. My well, this is the the years. whole. That's the whole basis of the whole the the, the Terry uh, Stafford case, right? Where the yeah. Uh, yeah. Michael Michael Rafferty was was transferred to a minimum security prison in the. And the father of the eight-year-old girl who was murdered, sexually assaulted, murdered by by Michael Rafferty, was was never informed until after the fact. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what what we try to do when we receive these complaints is, you know, um, we look at them and then we we try to uh, work with those federal departments um, and and you know, where it's within our mandate and, and that's possible to, to say, hey, there, there may be ways that you could do things better um, in terms of considerations for victims. So um, I just made some recommendations that we made public to the, to the Minister of Public Safety around prison transfers. I don't know if you saw that. I um, didn't. But we, okay. said, we said, you know, victims are telling us, and they've been telling us for many years, that they want to have a say in transfer decision-making process. Will you consider, please consider, when an offender submits to have a voluntary transfer, like informing the victim that they've put in a request. So, at, you know, before you make the decision, inform them that an offender wants to be transferred to such and such prison. And then seek the concerns that victims have if, if there are any, sometimes there may not be any, but if somebody is being transferred to a location close to where the victim lives, they may have safety concerns and, and that's reasonable and they should be able to voice those. And the system should consider the impact that transferring somebody to really close proximity to the victim is going to have on them, right? And in terms of anxiety and distress that it's going to cause. And, and maybe there's... Um, uh, you know, you could make an alternate arrangement for this offender so that it doesn't cause emotional distress to a victim. And and if we include victims from the outset in those decisions, then maybe you're going to make be able to make decisions that are are better for um, the people who've been harmed and and doesn't cause secondary victimization to them. Since you touched on it, I, I want to uh, I, I want to address it. Um, you, you said. Uh, and and I, I think this is right. The ombudsman has the power only so far as to make recommendations. Is that a flaw with the system? Um, should not the ombudsman have the power to actually legislate change 
rather than having to go up through the umbrella of the Minister of Public uh, Safety. Should, should, I mean, it's not your flaw, it's, but I'm, I'm just asking, would it be better if the ombudsman had the power to effect change? Yeah, so I was, I was just at a, a conference. Um, we have a forum of ombudsmen. Um, so there's a huge network of, because so many institutions have ombudspersons now, like hospitals and universities, and, you know, provincially, um, there's ombuds offices as well. Um, so we were, you know, that's a topic of conversation. How much power should the ombuds offices have? And some are legislated and some are not. And I kind of, like, I'm, I'm a... I'm of both, like, I understand the value of both, um, where you, like, the, the correctional investigator, they can compel corrections to provide them information and to, to take certain actions, and they report to the legislator, like, the legislature, they're set up a little bit differently than us. Right, um, corrections in Canada has its own ombudsperson. Yeah, yeah. and they, they call them the correctional investigator. Um, and they, some would say that they're more powerful than our office, um, perhaps. I, I guess it depends on your, your point of view. But certainly they, they report to the legislature uh, or to parliament, so um, and not to the ministers, a little, a little bit different. Um, but, you know, I, like, I, I'm of the view that, that our office, and it, and it is similar to a couple of other federal offices, we have to make really good arguments. Like we have to show why um, an agency should change their policy and why it makes sense and why it's a good thing. Like it's, we sort of call it, we refer to it as moral suasion, but. Um, oh, you know, I like that way, very much. I think it's, it's almost better to convince a big system that, hey, you can do better and this is why than saying you have to do this because I've told you to do this and you know you must because I don't I don't know if the the change is actually you know, right sometimes when you if, if when you're forcing it, it on them. yeah if something is is kind of just thrown at you with a certain amount of arrogance it doesn't mean anybody's going to willingly change yeah right and I kind of think um, of course it's it's not perfect and. Um, you know, that's a challenge that we have is, well, hey, how do you know, you know, if nobody's acting on your recommendations, what is the point of the office? Well, the point is, is that we're, we're trying to make significant change and we have to convince these really large systems and agencies and bodies that um, here's why this is important. And, you know, it's, it's more like a... It's a, a more nuanced approach. Thing. I mean, I get it. Yeah. I, yeah, it's yeah. a it's a culture shift and a change in thinking, um, and so to me, like it's it's um, just I don't I want to say advocacy, but it's pure like um, a total thinking shift that we have to convince um, whether it's Justice Canada or. Public Safety Canada, the agencies that we're dealing with, um, about why victims matter and why their rights are important. Um, you know, if we're if we're taking um, a human rights approach in Canada to um, federally sentenced offenders, um, why are we not also taking a human rights approach to 
people who are victimized. And, and so there should be balance in the way that we treat um, these people uh, who've been harmed. You know, I um, I listened to the podcast that you did with Joanne Wemmers, uh, who's a colleague and friend from Université de Montréal, and I agree 100% with um, her, you know, that the, the crime is not committed against the state, it's committed against individuals. People's bodily integrity is violated, sometimes the right to life is violated, um, their security of the person is violated, so when you have suffered such extreme violations, you should be able to assert your rights and have the state be responsive to your rights and, and meet them as they're laid out in legislation. And um, so, yeah, we're not, we're not quite there yet in Canada. We have, we have this, you know, really important federal legislation, but we're, we haven't taken it quite far enough yet that, we're, that we recognize well, that I think uh, should be able to enforce their rights that they have in the law. And and I think that's a fair notion that you're saying. I mean, it's always better to persuade someone to do something than to force them to do something. Better still, if you can convince them that they thought of the idea themselves. If it gets it done, even even yes. better. Uh, I think you're totally correct on that. Since you brought up the the Wemmers point and and that the crime isn't against the. Uh, isn't against the state. It's very personal. Um, where do you think? Where do you think we need to go next in in Canada? Um, I mean, do you ever envision a situation where, in the criminal court, you have the lawyer for the crown, you have the lawyer for the defense, and right at smack in the middle, you have the lawyer for the victim? Would, could you ever foresee that? I can foresee victims being participants in the process. Yes. And sometimes that will require legal representation, um, but it's not the same as being a party to the offense. Like I think, I don't think we need to completely change the adversarial system that we have. Um, it's it's definitely not perfect, but I, you know, I understand that um, changing it completely would be probably impossible. So to me, I say let's look at really good models that we have in other places around the world. And I think, you know, Joanne makes this point beautifully about the international criminal court. Um, we have a, a system there that works really well where victims can be participants. They can speak to the court when it's required with a, a representative. Um, and I think we could start in Canada. We could, we could try it with sexual assault. Um, I think you know uh, that we have a significant problem in Canada around um, the prosecution of these crimes um, and um, the conviction rates are very low. Um, and so... Yeah, what did you say? You said 97% don't... Uh, well, yeah, we have, we have a situation where 95% of uh, victims don't even report to the police. Right. Um, we have a situation where uh, I think it's three out of 1,000 cases uh, that, you know, where there are charges laid that result in a conviction. Well, it's, so, it's, it's, it's horrific. I mean, I was reading, there's a couple of fairly famous cases in the 90s 
where offenders, rape offenders, d decided to defend themselves. They said, I don't need a lawyer. So there they are on the stand cross-examining their, their victim. I mean, for me, that is the, the ultimate horror show. Um, yeah. I don't know if that still occurs in Canada. I know it did in Quebec for a period. Yeah, um, well, we, you know, you do have situations where accused will try to represent themselves. Um, but we have, yeah, we have a, a serious problem with um, rape myths being really pervasive, um, you know, defense, badgering, um, shaming, humiliating victims on the stand. Um, we have a situation where crowns maybe are not intervening as often as they should. We have a situation where if judges uh, intervene, then people appeal uh, cases and say that they're not in, uh, um, you know, impartial. Um, so we have, we just, we have to do a total revisioning of the system in terms of uh, sexual assault. Um, you know, we, we have some provinces now who are providing free legal advice to victims, but to me, um, I think we have, we need to go a little bit further than that, um, that victims should be able to have a representative, um, you know, if they decide that they're going to proceed through the criminal justice system, that, um, you know, I mean, assuming that charges are laid and the Crown thinks there's a reasonable prospect of conviction and a case moves forward, um, that the victim should have their own lawyer because the Crown's interests are not the same as the victim's. Um, and so I think it would be valuable to have them be a participant who has someone who can represent and speak to their needs and interests. You know, um, so you don't, we don't have to completely change the system. I think we can add it to the, the adversarial system like they've done at the International Criminal Court, and it seems to work really well. Um, and I, I'm hopeful that... Um, you know, the advocates who are speaking out um, across the country around sexual violence, they're going to push um, maybe towards this next step. We have specialized courts for mental health and for, um, you know, drug courts. And so perhaps we need specialized courts for sexual violence where judges, crowns, um, and defense are all are trained on the neurobiology of trauma and, and then victims can have representation um, when it comes to protecting their privacy and, and their interests in the courtroom. I think, um, I think that's a great area of focus and, and an important incremental uh, change. I don't, um, I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but um, one thing I did want to touch on uh, bef before I let you go, uh, you know, rounding things out on a positive note, who in Canada currently is doing some really, really great work, some cutting-edge work in the in the sphere of uh, vic uh, crime victims' work? Yeah, um, well, I think there are a lot of amazing agencies uh, doing good work. Um, I guess, first and foremost, I think the child and youth advocacy centers that we have um, set up in many cities now, not every every city, but many, many cities across Canada. Um, these are specialized uh, programs where young child victims are um, surrounded by the professionals that they need to deal with when they're disclosing sexual violence. 
um, so the system surrounds them in a child and friend, child friendly environment, and um, you know takes statements from them um, and videotapes them so that they can be used in court. Um, they're highly effective, uh, very supportive environments, and um, we know that when these um, these methods are used with these cases, that the um, conviction rates go up quite a lot um, in these cases. So um, those programs are amazing. Um, there's now 42 programs, I believe the number is 42 in Canada. So victim services programs, usually connected to police services that are using facility dogs, um, canine trauma dogs uh, to respond to victims. So they have um, these beautiful uh, dogs who are who are highly trained. They're very calm, uh, loving animals, and they are brought to sit with victims when they are. So it's it's like a support victims. animal. Is that? Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. They're they're called intervention dogs, canine intervention dogs, and they. Um, are giving court support they go to court with victims they are there for them they have a, a calming effect it's shown in science that uh lower petting these dogs um while you're you know very anxious it lowers your blood pressure and it helps you release oxytocin which is that good hormone that's called the love hormone what a um, what a I'm, simple great idea yeah um you know mad canada is now holding Peer, online peer support groups for their um, family members who are affected by drug and alcohol impaired driving. Um, so this is really great for people who live, you know, yeah, who are isolated. Area and can't come into the city to be part of a support group. Just amazing. Um, you know, my old agency is doing a lot of uh, live chat support for victims and texting support. A lot of the Agencies are moving towards electronic means of supporting victims, you know, because not everybody can make a phone call or yes. wants to talk on the phone um, or wants to email. So these these new ways of interacting with clients um, are so, so important and um, really innovative, I think. Um, a lot of uh, we're seeing more, I think, um openness to restorative justice in Canada too and the use of it and different programs that are doing really really good work can you give um, a can you give an example um, a lot of people may not be aware of the concept of restorative justice um, sure um, so there there's different sort of programs that exist but um, a lot of times they're uh, in the community um, and working not connected to the courthouse, but sometimes they are because they'll get referrals either from police or the crowns, and um, it's it's a it's a process where the offender has to be willing to um, make amends for what they've done to be completely, um, you know. Uh, willing to offer an apology, um, want to uh, be honest about what they've done, take responsibility, and the victim as well has to be open to it. It's a process that involves um, the victim, the community, the offender, and addressing the harm directly. So 
these parties will come together usually with a mediator um, to address the harm, to talk about the harm. The offender will uh, take full responsibility for it and then um, try to make amends. Like usually there's some sort of agreement um, that the parties come to. Uh, I mean, example, I, I I even love the uh, the model of uh, Emma's Acres, uh, Glenn Glenn Flett and Sherry Flett, where the offender and the victim work alongside each other on a farm, uh, yeah, and and that absolutely. to me is mind blowing. Yeah, and um, these these sort of programs are um, really beneficial to the victims who go through them, the research um, and the evaluations that have been done. Uh, for very various programs show that their victims are much more satisfied with these type of programs because they're actually involved in in the you know the resolution of the case they have a say they can tell the offender directly to their face or through a letter or through some sort of communication right you're not you're not going to get that in the court yeah the, they can Tell them the effect that it's had. They can um, explain to their face um, what the crime has done to them and, you know, the fears that they may have and uh, all of the impacts. And and then the parties together can come to uh, an understanding. There doesn't need to be forgiveness. That's a myth. Um, but there is respect and there is... Um, you know, uh, a willingness to make amends by the offender. And um, like I said, a lot of times an agreement is made um, between the parties and it, you know, it could be perhaps to repair damage done to a home or something like that. Um, and uh, and then, you know, the, the, the process either doesn't go to court immediately or it um, is, it goes back to the court after an agreement's been made, and then and then the court can say, okay, you guys have come to this agreement, so we're going to, you know, um, uh, not drop the case, but um, suspend things and, and until such time that you fulfill the agreement. And uh, so it's a, it's a way that we can um, have alternatives to the criminal justice system in Canada, I think. Um, not every case, needs to perhaps go through the criminal justice system. Um, and then restorative justice gives us ways at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end of the sentence as well. Um, when somebody is prosecuted and does serve um, a prison sentence, we have a really great program through Correctional Service Canada um, where uh, parties can have dialogues as well. Um, so I've been involved with some of that as well, where victims have met, like I've, I've accompanied the mother of um, a murdered child to speak and have a face-to-face -face meeting with the man who killed her son. Um, a really powerful experience for her. She wanted to tell him to his face what the crime did to her and her family. And I'm sorry, and he was, he was willing to participate in this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He wanted to. This was probably 18 years after he committed the offense, and he was very remorseful. He actually, um, you know, cried his eyes out at that meeting. He wanted to make amends. He wanted to assure her that he was 
not going to commit this sort of crime again. I mean, he's still, he hasn't even had a first parole hearing yet. So, wow. you know, we, he's got a ways to go, um, uh, serving life for three first degree murders. But, um, for her, it was a amazingly powerful experience. She was holding on to a lot of anger, um, and hate. And so getting to directly dialogue with him, not to forgive him, like I said, but to tell him, what he did, he did to her family. Um, it was so powerful for her, and she just felt um, in such a better place afterwards. Um, like a lo- weight was lifted off of her shoulders, and um, well, it's amazing know. what what can be achieved when you you're forced to look somebody eye to eye, as opposed yeah. to anonymously hating so- something. Uh, sure, yeah. and I just yeah, I just think um, you know. There's really good programs that we can use, and um, for very serious crime, like I said, uh, you know, Correctional Services Canada is offering this uh, this program to the most serious offenses. You know, that we're talking about murder, um, we're talking about sexual assault, we're talking about serious violence. Um, so I think um, these sort of um, innovative programs have to continue and. Um, they can, you know, when they're, um, we have people at the community level doing this really great work and we have, um, you know, the support from different uh, levels of government for these important programs that are, are really benefiting victims and, um, and helping them to come, um, or to move towards healing. Um, I won't say always helping them to heal, but move towards healing. Well, Heidi, Thanks so much for joining me today. I, um, I, I really appreciate having taken an hour to uh, talk with you about your, your new challenges and, and endeavors. Uh, you're on Twitter, yes, we, and I, we yes. should mention that. The Twitter handle is at, and this is a mouthful, <laughs> it's at O-F-O-V-C underscore B-O-F-V-A. C. Did I get it right? Yeah. Okay. Yes, and, you did. Yes, and, that is the Office of the Federal Ombudsman, the Bureau de l'Ombudsman Federal des Victimes d'Actes Criminels. Ah, c'est très, c'est, c'est très bon. Uh, votre français? Excellent. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right, do you have time on the way out to do quick, rapid-fire questions? It's sure, always a fun yeah. way we do it. Favorite place for lunch in Ottawa, and you can't say the place you were at on Power and Politics. Um, Pilos, a little Greek place. Nice. Okay, a little Greek place. And uh, when you go out and you have dinner with the kids, where do, you, where do they like to go? Um, they love to go to Lone Star or to Kelsey's. Um, and then here, I live a little bit outside. Um, we have like a little family restaurant, like a local place, a little diner that we go to. Nice, nice. First concert you ever saw? Uh, I think it was George Michael. <laughs> That's great. Uh, what's the last great book you read? And it can't be about your line of work. It's got to be something different. Oh, no. Um, you know what? I love uh, the Shopaholic series. Oh, uh, yeah. She's a British author. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Sophie Kinsella. And so I think the last one that I read was um, some something in Las Vegas. They were doing uh, some sort of trip to Las Vegas. Anyways, hilarious. 
British, uh, just fun, um, mind-numbing, good little read. Roomba or no Roomba? No Roomba. Really? I I love my Roomba. <laughs> my I got you could eat off my floor. I mean, I oh. it's, it, the house has never been so clean. I, uh, I mean, I just think I've got a black lab, so our like she shed so much. I can't. I feel like it would fill up in one second, and I would constantly be trying to clean it out. I I like the idea of it, but I don't know. I would need like an extra large. <laughs> they have those. They have those for like large shedding pets. You should look into it. Oh well, maybe I maybe I should yeah, get one then. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I understand um, you, you played field hockey when in your younger days. Are you an Ottawa Sens fan? I did. No. Um, you know what? We're, um, my husband's a basketball player, so the kids are basketball players, so we're huge Toronto Raptors fans. Oh. Oh. Well, yeah, not hockey at all. Are, are they still in it? I don't know. I, they are, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they are. Um, they're starting uh, the series tomorrow night against Philadelphia. So, yeah, we're cheering them on. The second nice. round of the playoffs. All right, go Raptors. Um, do you have a favorite goofy landmark in Canada? Um, goofy landmark. Um, <laughs> I, I there's like a yeah, I guess there's um <laughs> a, a giant lobster in Fredericton. I I I I think you're the second person who cited the giant lobster. It's it's I think it's around Shediac or Sussex. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's on the way to Prince Edward Island for sure. So um I I'm probably getting the city wrong, but um yeah, is that is that the goofiest one? I mean I love the East Coast, so um anything to do with uh sea life or uh you know, uh, lobsters yeah. Hey, that's great. I love it. <laughs> that that I, th- I think if I remember that lobster is actually a, a kid's slide. Yes, it uh, might be. <laughs> and and I have uh, I'm going to post it. What, what the heck? There's video of me, my sister, and my brother going down that slide like from the 70s. So. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, what's one place in Canada to visit that um, maybe um, someone from outside of Canada might not think of? Oh. Um. I guess I'll, I'll, I'll say, um, stay in the Atlantic provinces. Island, uh, on the oh. east coast of Edward Island, there's a little town called Montague. That's really awesome. Love it. And then, um, we go up to this super awesome beach called Basin Head, um, that is known as Queen Sands Beach, but, uh, there's this bridge that the kids jump off of into rushing water, and it's just like a little heaven on earth uh, on the very east coast of Prince Edward Island. Fantastic. I have not heard of either of those. Heidi, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, John, for having me, and um, I appreciate the chance to talk to all of your listeners. Okay. You have a good afternoon. You too. Take care.
true crime on A&E with groundbreaking original shows like The First 48, Cold Case Files, Accused, Guilty or Innocent, and American Justice. No one brings you closer. Groundbreaking true crime every Thursday and Friday on A&E. True crime on A&E with groundbreaking original shows like The First 48, Cold Case Files, Accused, Guilty or Innocent, and American Justice. No one brings you closer. Groundbreaking true crime every Thursday and Friday on A&E.